Well, after our uh, departure for Advent and Christmas, we return today to our study through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. You will remember that when we last met, we were in the middle of a section of the letter that dealt with the puzzling issue of the Jews. How is it that those people whom God selected from all the peoples of the earth to be his particular people, how is it that they should display such a hardness of heart that they would reject the Lord's Messiah for whom they had waited so long? And beginning in chapter 9, Paul provides some theological perspective on that question by indicating that when God elected Abraham, God was not electing all the biological descendants of Abraham, or else we would also have to consider the children of Ishmael as well as the children of Esau. But God was careful to point out to Moses that he is free to save those whom he chooses. He will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion upon whom he will have compassion. God's salvation is not connected to biology, but rather to grace. It is not connected to an individual's merit, but according to the merit of Christ. God's salvation is not connected to a personal righteousness in us, but according to the righteousness of Jesus. And this is where the Israelites got it all wrong. Paul goes on to say, that they failed to comprehend that Abraham was not saved by his righteousness, but rather it was his faith in God's promises to him that God counted unto him as righteousness. Well, all of that brings us to the text today, that, uh, and the question that arises in the face of all of this is whether or not God has finally and totally rejected the nation of Israel in favor of the Gentiles. And so we come now to Romans chapter 11, and I invite you to turn there once again and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired word. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. 
And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. We have uh, mentioned on a couple of occasions that the congregation in Rome was a mixed congregation or a blended congregation. And by that mean, by that we mean that the membership was comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And since we have no record of any of the apostles traveling to Rome to establish this church, we suppose that it had its origins on the day of Pentecost. On Pentecost, there were Jews from all over the world in Jerusalem for the great feast. And they were witnesses to the coming of the Holy Spirit in power upon the disciples of Jesus, such that they heard the glorious good news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And they heard that proclaimed in their own native language. And it is largely believed that Jews from Rome were there and that they were converted as a result of God's Spirit at work in their hearts and God's Word producing faith that allowed them to embrace Christ and to have their own confirming experience with the Holy Spirit. And you will remember that when Peter finished preaching that day that the people were quote-unquote cut to the heart. And they asked, brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And at the end of that day, about 3,000 souls came to Christ. Those converts, many of them then, returned to Rome, where they began to gather regularly on the Lord's day, devoting themselves to the very same things as did the believers in Jerusalem, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with other believers, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. And 2,000 years later, we still focus on those same four things. And when the gospel then spread to the Gentiles, it was only natural that word of this made its way to Rome and that Gentile believers themselves would have traveled to Rome for personal uh, and business reasons. And there they found a Christian fellowship already gathered. We don't really have any insight into how those initial contacts went. But we do know that the cultural differences between Jew and Gentile believer led to tensions and difficulty within the fellowships. And we will see this as it pertains to Rome, when the Roman church, when we get to chapter 14. But all in all, the congregation that met in Rome appears to have fared well, situated as they were in the heart of Rome where paganism was displayed on every corner. Well, Paul's letter to them has focused on presenting to one and all the gospel of salvation that he preaches, and at the same time recognizing that there are unique implications that are drawn depending upon whether or not you are Jew or Gentile. And so throughout his letter, Paul has sought to address these issues. And in this section, chapters 9, 10, and 11, 
Paul gives evidence that where the Jews went wrong was in seeking a righteousness of their own rather than receiving by faith the righteousness that God offers to the world through Jesus Christ. But that is not strictly a Jewish tendency, is it? As Gentile sinners, we struggle with that tendency ourselves. There are many Sundays while meeting and greeting folks after worship that guests will come by to shake my hand and greet me, and I will be given a brief history lesson as to their familial connections to this church. I learned that their father and their grandfather and their great-grandfathers on both sides of the family, they were, they were all Presbyterian ministers, and that it was in this very church back in 19-whatever that Dr. Lapsley married their parents and baptized them, and on and on they go. Now, do not get me wrong, I am personally grateful for religious heritage and for the fact that by God's providence, I have Dutch Reformed ancestors to whom I owe a great deal in terms of their faithful transmission of the gospel to their descendants. But there are times when I pick up a hint that it is upon this type of grand heritage that some people are resting their salvation hope. The way that some of them speak about their family tree is so reminiscent of the way in which the Pharisees spoke of their father Abraham. And you remember, we've studied the Gospels extensively, but do you remember the conversations they had with Jesus? They pointed to their family tree. They declared that Abraham was their father. But Jesus replies, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now Paul points out that our salvation is not about the heritage that is ours by birth. We're not saved because we come from a long line of Christian believers. We are not Christian because our parents were Christian. If we are Christian, it is because God's Spirit regenerated us to new life, and by faith we laid hold of the work of Christ, and we threw ourselves upon God's mercy, crying out in repentance, O God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as Paul begins to deal with this tendency among the Jewish converts in Rome, he is underscoring for them and for us that our confidence cannot rest upon anything other than God's grace and the work of His only begotten Son. Now having said that, it does naturally raise a question then as to what happened with Israel. If God made covenantal promises with Abraham, then what in the world happens such that by the time Messiah comes, the leaders of Jerusalem oppose him to such an extent that they are the plotters behind his crucifixion? And does that result in God finally and fully rejecting Israel? Or does God still have designs upon her? And Paul answers the first part of those questions when he points out that the problems between God and Israel cannot be laid at the feet of God. 
It isn't that Israel did not have adequate revelation from God's Word. It isn't that God failed to adequately provide for the needs of His people. Or that God left her wondering what she should do. No, Paul writes. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. If there has been any rejecting going on in the relationship, it has been on the side of we human beings. And it's always the case. Adam and Eve rejected God in the garden. All of humanity rejected God's call to repentance offered by Noah. Pharaoh rejected God's word to him offered through Moses. The Hebrews rejected God at Sinai in favor of a golden calf. Israel rejected God as their king clamored for a human king. Israel rejected God's prophets and chased after the gods of her neighbors. And in the fullness of time, Israel rejected her Messiah. And instead of embracing him, they beat him and mocked him and tortured him by nailing him to a tree over which hung a sign that said, King of the Jews. And people still reject God. And the revelation of himself offered to them through his holy word. And yet God is long-suffering toward sinners. Not wanting any to perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God delays in coming again in judgment. Just so people have adequate time to repent. It isn't that God does the rejecting. And so Paul asks the question, has God rejected his people? And he answers, by no means. An answer and an expression that we have encountered in this letter before, an expression that means let it not be so or perish the thought. And to establish the veracity of that statement, Paul points to himself as living proof. Paul's an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham born of the tribe of Benjamin, the youngest son of Jacob, who was actually born in the promised land after Jacob's sojourns in Mesopotamia. Paul has all the credentials to be considered a card-carrying Israelite. So no, God has not rejected Israel fully and completely. For if that was the case, then God would never have called Saul of Tarsus to become an apostle. The nation of Israel through whom God worked to bring His only begotten Son into the world, God will continue to reach with His grace, preserving a remnant as He always has. And to underscore that point, Paul directs his readers' attention not to the traditions of the elders, not to the teachings of the scribes, but to the Scriptures themselves. And this is important for us to consider because whenever there are theological controversies, there are those who appeal not to the Scriptures, but to other sources of authority that they believe are far more significant. But God's Word is as relevant and as effective today as it ever was. God's Word does not have an expiration date attached to it like a gallon of milk. When God speaks, it is truth, and it is not just true for a limited period of time. God is capable of speaking anything, or God is incapable of speaking anything that is not eternally true. 
Now that's not to say that God did not have a particular purpose in mind when he first instructed Israel in regards to ceremonial law, for example, such that they were to be diligent in their eating habits and their attention to cleanliness and what they were to offer as a sacrifice for their sins and so on. But those things were never intended to be permanent. And so when the fullness of time dawned and the one to whom all those ceremonial laws pointed finally arrived, God was clear that those things came to an end. When people seek to confuse you and suggest to you that God has evolved, that God has changed over the centuries, and that by this point in history, God has mellowed a great deal, such that things He once commanded in the Old Testament have been abridged and boiled down to a simple adage like, can't we all just get along? You need to run away from that kind of influence as fast as your legs will carry you, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's how Paul is able to point his readers back to the Scriptures and show them that the answer to their question is not found in the circumstances of the day. The answer to their question is found in the Scriptures if they will but study them. And he points to the time of Elijah. When Israel had rejected God under the influence of King Ahab and his queen Jezebel, Elijah had just conducted a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and God had graciously displayed his power and might before the people. And Jezebel went on the warpath, sending out hit squads to track down Elijah and kill him. And thoroughly spent emotionally and spiritually, Elijah decided that it would be a good time to take a vacation. And as we read earlier today, he holed up in a cave at Mount Horeb. Now, do you remember the history of Horeb? We also know it as Sinai. And it was there that Moses encountered God in the burning bush. And it was there that the people of God came after crossing the Red Sea. And Moses went atop the mountain and received the law of God. And here Elijah pours out the great frustration of his life and his ministry that people have not responded. In fact, the people have rejected God. And he says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I'm the only one left in all of the land who is faithful to you. And they're trying to kill me. Have you ever felt like that? God, what's up with this? I've done everything that you've ever asked of me. And still it appears that everything is coming apart at the seams. And Elijah points to what is a wholesale rejection of God to the extent that they have killed the prophets, those whom God commissioned to proclaim to them the word of God. And then they destroyed the altars, the places where the priests would offer up the proper sacrifices to make atonement before the holy God of Israel, the places necessary to propitiate the wrath of God, and lest we think that there is that this is only true of Israel, we need to remember what Paul will later write to Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth 
and wander off into myths. People who reject God's Word today may not physically kill those who proclaim the Gospel, but they seek to silence them in a variety of other ways nonetheless. But God wants Elijah and the people of Rome and the church today to remember what He said to Elijah. I have kept for Myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see, the God of the Bible is a God who saves. He saves people who are sinners. He saves people who do not merit salvation. He saves people who are stubborn and hard-hearted. And He promises that He will turn their hearts of stone into flesh. And God will save those whom He chooses. These 7,000 who have refused to bend the knee to Baal did not remain faithful because they had the character in and of themselves to remain faithful. They did so because God sustained them. God kept them for Himself. And Paul points this out because he wants his readers to, uh, to recognize that God has set aside a remnant by grace in His day as well. Even though the majority of His kinsmen have rejected God's Christ, there are those whom God has chosen by grace to respond in faith to Jesus. There aren't any works involved in the equation because if there is, we can no longer claim that it's by grace. And this is why he says clearly, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now this is always disturbing to our ears because our sin has set a default position in our mind that says, I'm really a good person. But we're not. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And it's always in this time of the year past when you will see a meme of the young boy sitting on Santa's knee and Santa says, have you been a good boy this year, and the little guy always answers, no, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a wretched sinner. (laughs) And when my sin tells me I'm a good person, I'm inclined to reject Jesus and all that He's done for me. I'm inclined to rest upon my own righteousness and my own heritage and my own standing. But you see, it is that process of trying to defend myself before God that hardens my heart. It is this arguing with God that makes my heart reject Him more and more and more until I no longer hear the call of the Lord to me to repent and turn away from my sin and rely upon Him alone. And we refer to this as a judicial hardening. That is, God eventually goes silent. And Paul quotes a couple of passages that refer to this where the children of Israel so opposed the will of God that God magnified their stubbornness to the point that all the world could see the foolishness of their rebellion. Eyes that could no longer see and ears that could no longer hear. And there is no greater peril than that. Which is why the writer to the Hebrews warns his readers that today... If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
Again, if there's any rejecting going on in humanity's relationship with God, it begins with us. So let me ask you, how is it with you? The Lord calls all men and women to approach His throne of grace with broken and contrite hearts, realizing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But not just any Savior, for there is only one whom God has sent to be the mediator between God and man, even Jesus the Christ, whose perfect life and atoning work have been shown by His victory over death in the grave to make Him worthy of the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord. And if you have not responded in faith yet to call upon to that call of His upon your life, then I invite you to do so even now as we bow together in prayer. Would you pray with me?